Well, last week um, I endeavoured in Romans chapter 3, which I think is the clearest chapter on the gospel. There's many, many clear passages, but Romans 3 was so clear. Clear gospel truth with, under the title of Remember the True Gospel. It's one thing to talk about remembering all the way the Lord has led us, but if your foundation is wrong or faulty, and the foundation of the walk of the Christian life to the celestial city is the true gospel. If you don't get that right, then the way is all wrong. And I sought to make that clear, clear gospel truth. And I strove as hard as I physically could. But if God didn't speak to you through it, then it will have had no effect whatsoever. Many, many people could hear the same words being spoken, the same passage of scripture being opened. But if the God of heaven does not speak in the heart, it will have no effect. Now you say, well, that's all right. Why is this important? Why, why are you saying it's so important that we know the truth of the gospel? Well, this is the reason. We all stand on the verge of eternity. And I think most of us live putting to the back of our minds how actually very close we are to eternity. It's appointed to man to die once and then the judgment. We stand on the verge of eternity. And if God leaves us to ourselves, our sinful selves, ourselves that are at enmity with him, we must eternally perish. We must go into a timeless state of eternal suffering, a lost eternity without God, without his truth, without anything that is good. But if he brings us to see something of his person, of his holiness, of his majesty, of his sovereignty, and of our sin and our utter depravity, our just desert of eternal separation from him because seeing something of how glorious he is and how vile and corrupt and rebellious and against him we are, our just desert of eternal separation from him, it, it will be clear before us. And if we, he brings us to see that, there's only one thing that can give us any comfort at all. And that is the Lord saying to my soul, I am thy salvation. Has God said to you, I am thy salvation? Our text is in Psalm 35, and I just want to take a phrase at the end of verse 3. He says, draw out also the spear and stop the way against them that persecute me. Now this is it. Say unto my soul, I am thy salvation. We need God, the true God the one and only God, to say to you and me individually in our hearts, to say this, if the God of the universe who said, let there be light and there was light, if he say in your soul, I am thy salvation, what a blessed position you are in. In this psalm, as in all of the others, David is praying for his safety in the face of enemies. Also in this psalm, as in all others, Jesus the God-man, God become man. He's praying for keeping in the face of, his, of, of satanic opposition that would, would bring to nothing his mission of redemption. It's Jesus the God-man praying to his Father to keep him. And it's also his people 
in him, in the Lord Jesus Christ, praying for assurance of eternal good. So let's think about this. What, what is it for the Lord to say unto my soul, I am thy salvation? We need to come to a realisation, first of all, this is my first point, of yours and mine as sinners, our desperate need. Have you been brought by God to feel your true condition as a sinner? To feel it, not just to oh, academically know it. It's one thing to assent to the truth of the fact that, yes, I'm a sinner. It's another to feel it in your core. You can possibly remember occasions in your life, I certainly can, where when I think of them, the sense of shame regarding things I've done or said to others, oh, if only I could go back and undo that. Why did I say that thing at that time to that person? And you shrink within, you go, oh, if only I didn't say that. Have you ever had that feeling? Well, it's that multiplied many times over. This sense of utter evil that is in us, in my very being, over my sin against God who is holy and high and lifted up. Do you know that's, that's a blessed state to be brought to? You say, surely that's the very opposite of a blessed state. It's a dreadful state, knowing how bad you are in the eyes of God. No, that's so good to know that. You see, it shows our separation between God, our creator, in the highest of heaven, and me, the rebel, down here in the dust. And not only seeing what I am versus God, but my basic inability to do right, how the natural tendency of my flesh is always to do wrong. Uh, there's, a, there's a concept in the subject of physics called entropy, and it, it, it's disorder, it's the state of disorder. And in this creation, entropy always increases. Left to itself, things don't get tidier, things don't get more ordered, things don't get swept up and tidied, they get more and more disordered. They get more and more spread out. It's like that with sin in us. We, within us, within our flesh, there is no good thing. Within me, that is in my flesh, sin must always increase. You know what the testimony of the word of God is about you and me as sinners? In the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 17 and verse 9, this is, his, this is the, the, the testimony of God against all of us. The heart, your heart, my heart, the heart is deceitful above, oh no, I'm pretty good, no, I wouldn't do any harm. To, no, this is the word of God. This is the testimony of God. The heart, your heart, my heart, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You can't know it to its full depth and I can't either. But the Lord does. Verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. You see, all have sinned. We read that in Romans 3 last week. All have sinned and fall short. We sin, we fall short of the glory of God. And there's nothing hidden from the God who sees all things. It says in Romans 8, 27, that God is the one who searches the hearts. Do you know you can't hide anything from the sovereign God of the universe? He's God who searches the hearts. Whatever you think you can hide from everybody else around you, 
Those closest to you, you can't hide them from God, for he searches the hearts and he sees. God, who is holy, God, who is absolute perfection, cannot tolerate sinners like you and me. He says that as far as his heaven is concerned, nothing which defileth can enter therein. Nothing. Nothing. Well, well, not so bad. No, no. A good attempt is absolutely futile. Oh, you protest that, well, look around. There's some utterly evil people that have done some utterly terrible things. I wouldn't have done that. You protest that you're pretty good compared with others. The Apostle James writes this, James 2 verse 10. Whosoever shall keep the whole law, the whole commandments of God, everything that God requires for righteousness, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point. Oh, only one point? Only one point? Oh, surely that's okay. No, he is guilty of all. Keep it all, but offend in one point. He is guilty of all. You may not have committed open sins that others have done. You've seen some terrible things. We read about it in the news all of the time. But you know this. If God opens your eyes to it, the seeds of all sin is there in your heart, in the heart of every single one of us. And you see, that separates us from God. That condemns us before God because God requires constant perfection. He wrote it in the book of Deuteronomy, the Remember book, the second law book. He wrote there, Deuteronomy 27 verse 26, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them. And it's repeated, it's quoted, Paul quotes it in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 10, it says this, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. You and me, we're of the works of the law. As many as are of the works of the law, as many as are trying to earn righteousness with God by doing the things that the law requires us to do, are under a curse. Why? Because it is written. It is written what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 27. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in most things. No, all things that are written in the book of the law to do them continually, perfectly, without ever an error. And when you die, as we all must, and you hope that God will admit you to eternal bliss, the holy character of God will not be able to admit you to his eternal presence. If God allowed anything but perfection, the perfection of his nature into heaven, he would cease to be God. The trust of most religion, the trust of, you know, all of the, not Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, all of these, that's their trust that they will be good enough, judged by the works that they have done, that they'll be accepted with God. But it's also the trust of most of what calls itself Christianity, that God will allow us in because he'll, he'll let us off. With, with so many things. They, they, they hope that um, they'll get away with just a little bit of imperfection. But what that scripture said destroys that trust completely. You see, religion says, how can I be right with God? How should a man be just with God? 
And it says, work, you must work, you must do the right things, you must turn over a new leaf, you must keep the law of God perfectly, you must strive and strive and strive never to sin. Well, yes, strive not to sin, but don't think you'll ever be right with God by that. And some even go so far as to say, ah, ah, no, we know you can't work, but the Bible says, believe and you will have everlasting life, and so it does. But what they mean when they say that is believe as a work that you do, for which the reward will be that somehow God will cancel his law and he'll give you eternal life. But the truth is, the truth that God shows to the people who are his true people, that he loved from eternity, to his true people he shows this, that they can neither work nor can they of themselves believe. They do not earn eternal life, by doing that work that God calls them to do to believe. They can do neither in and of themselves. As you are sinful, what it says in Scripture, you are enmity with God. His justice must pay you your due wages. You know, when you work, when you do anything of a labour Necessity, those of you that work and earn a salary, you don't go to work. Well, some of you enjoy your jobs, but you, don't, you go because they pay you. The wages of sin, says the Bible, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. God pays his wages to those who are sinners. The wages of sin is death. He said it in his word in Ezekiel more than once. The soul that sins, it shall die. That's the wages of sin. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, wow. There, in the midst of that shocking sentence, is hope. The gift of God is eternal life. Eternal life is God's gift through Christ. This is, you know, you, you, we, we, we used to watch films, you know, Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail and all those sorts of things. This is the true thing that, is, that, that fiction and myth strives to get hold of in vain to discover. This is the true thing. How we can be right with God for eternity. How we can have eternal life. This is the true thing. Where religion calls on the sinner to work and even to do the work of believing, God in his word by the mouth of Christ in John's Gospel, chapter 6 and verse 29, God declares that it is his work alone. They asked Jesus in John 6, 29, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. This is the work of God that you believe. It's God's work that brings you to believe on him whom he has sent. That work of God is the salvation from sin. It's salvation from sin of a multitude, a multitude condemned under divine justice, a multitude that he loved from everlasting, as it says in Jeremiah. I have loved you with an everlasting love. It's the salvation of a multitude who are condemned justly under divine justice, but he loved them. And he saves them without violating his nature, without violating his holy nature, without violating his divine justice, while still honouring his holy law, whilst destroying Satan and the power of sin, 
whilst overcoming this rebellious world, whilst glorifying his own holy name because of the redemption that he accomplishes. If God shows you something of your situation as a sinner, how much you need to hear him say to your soul, I am thy salvation. There it is, verse 3. Say unto my soul, I am thy salvation. If God convicts you and brings you to that situation, you need to hear God say to your soul, I am thy salvation. Otherwise, how shall we escape? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? So then, my second point. What does this salvation accomplish? Show, say unto my soul, I am thy salvation. What does it accomplish? It's a salvation from one state to a different state. Envisage somebody out in the sea. It's going to get rough down in the sea a mile from us later today. They're predicting very strong winds and there'll be huge waves. And if you fell out of a boat down there, even a hundred yards from the shore, the chances are that you'd drown. You just wouldn't be able to get yourself back to shore. And you're in a helpless drowning condition. And there is no hope for you. And of your own strength, you cannot save yourself. For every stroke you make forward towards the beach, a big wave will drag you further out until you've lost strength and you drown. And somebody comes along with a life belt, with a lifeboat, whatever, and rescues you and puts your feet on dry ground. It's a state from peril to a state of safety. From a state of certain death to a situation where you're alive, from drowning to the dry land. It's a state of death to a state of life. It's a state of despair to a state of joy. We read this in uh, Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse, uh, verse 6. The Lord killeth. People are dying all around us all the time. This is the truth of God's word. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor. Blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich in righteousness. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He brings us low in the estimation of our own sinfulness, but lifts us up to the highest heaven. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust. He lifts up the beggar from the dunghill. That's not a pleasant place. And sets them among princes. Princes don't sit among dunghills. They sit in palaces and makes them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he hath set the world on them. This is what God does. The accomplishment of salvation is a salvation from a state of despair to a state of glory. It's a state that only God does for human beings, for his elect, for the people he loved from all eternity. Even the angels of God know nothing of redemption. A third of them fell when Satan fell and rebelled. There was no redemption for them. 
sinners are exalted beyond angels. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16, that when Christ came, he didn't take on him the nature of angels to, to redeem the fallen angels. He took on him the seed of who? Abraham. He took on him the seed of Abraham, on the one that was the man of his choice to come out of Ur of the Chaldees and to go to the land that he promised him. He took on him the seed of Abraham for salvation. And this salvation of God to his people is to the uttermost. It says in Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save. How far is he able to save? To the uttermost from sin's damning, condemning power from the, the, the curse of the law, which says the soul that sins, it shall die. And who has sinned? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. From sin's captivity, he releases, he ransoms, he frees his people. From the love of it within the heart, he frees his people to love the things of God. And you know, you say, well, look, we who are saved, we still die. We still go through physical death. But even in physical death, there is salvation, isn't there? Think of that penitent thief dying on the cross next to the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary. And he said, this day you shall be with me in paradise. As you leave this life, this day you shall be with me in paradise. This is salvation to the uttermost. As sin conquered the whole world at the fall, when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, Sin conquered the whole world and it's carried on ever since. Just as that was such an enormous great fall, God's salvation has triumphed eternally. And God lifts up sinners from the dust, from the dunghill, from the, bot from, from the horrible pit and sets their feet on a rock and sets them on the route to eternity. Romans chapter 5 verse 20. Where sin abounded and sin does abound, all around. It abounds in this world, it abounds in the people around us, it abounds in your heart and mind. Where sin abounded, grace, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace, the grace of salvation. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. God is able to save to the uttermost. By Christ and the salvation he accomplished, his people are dead to the law. They're dead to the law which would condemn us, the law of God which would condemn us. But because Christ has died under the curse of that law to redeem us from that curse, because he has died and we are, we, we are united with him, we are crucified with him, we are dead to that law if we believe in him so it can no longer curse the saved sinner. Why can the law no longer curse us? Because we're dead to it. Why are we dead to it? Because in Christ we died to it when he died. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is Christ that has died. He's died for his people. The law has nothing more to say. It is, it is finished. It is enough. There's no need for any more penalty to be, played, to be paid. We, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are killed to the law and married to Christ. Just as Romans chapter 7 says in verse 4 of chapter 7, Wherefore, my brethren, Ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, which died on the cross, that ye should be married to another, 
even to him who is raised from the dead. He died and was raised from the dead. You, you are dead with him because of the body of Christ that died on that cross. But you're married to another, even to the one who was raised from the dead, which is Christ. Even to him that we should bring forth fruit unto God. The, 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 the body under the law brings forth fruit unto death. But through him we bring forth fruit unto life. Killed to the law and married to Christ. To be right with God, to be assured of, et of eternal acceptance with him, how I need to hear God say unto my soul what David prayed. Lord, say unto my soul, I am thy salvation. Has God said that to you? I am thy salvation. And note who it is. This is my third point. It is the Lord who is my salvation. It is the God of salvation. Verse 1, plead my cause, O Lord, and then jump down to the end of verse 3. O Lord, say unto my soul, I am thy salvation. The glorious, mysterious God in the triunity, the trinity of his being, on whom his people call, this God, Lord, say unto my soul, I am thy salvation. When we pray that prayer, I'm always reminded of the verse in Ezekiel 36, verse 37, and it's in a little piece I put in the bulletin. Thus saith the Lord God. This is what God says to his people. He says, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel. I want them to pray to me. God says this, I want my people to pray for me. Why does God want his people to pray for him? He says it there in the same verse. To do it for them. To do it for them. Lord, say to my soul, I am thy salvation. Why does he bring us to pray to him? Lord, say to my soul, I am thy salvation, so that he will do it for us. So that he will say to us in our soul, I am your salvation. Has the God, the sovereign God, the triune God, the mysterious God that we can only know in the Lord Jesus Christ, if the Holy Spirit reveals him to us, has he said to your soul, I am thy salvation? This is prayer to the sovereign, omnipotent Lord. The one, when we say God is sovereign, it means nobody else can have that position, that authority. When we say he's omnipotent, there is none that can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? God is sovereign over all. And when we pray, Save me from just condemnation. We're acknowledging that it is just, but bring me to eternal communion in heaven. And do it all whilst remaining God, without violating your justice in any way. You know, it says that he is a just God and a saviour in Isaiah 45. God is a just God. If God were just to forgive sins without exacting the penalty for sins, God would not be just. But he is just. He's just and justifier. How is he just and justifier? By what he accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. God is my salvation. I'll say it again. God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah, this is his name, the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. 
he also is become my salvation. That's, that's what we're asking God to show us so that we can say that, so that you can say that. So I can say, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. I won't be afraid. I won't be afraid of anything in this life. I won't be afraid of those that can kill the body and can then do nothing else. I won't be afraid of death. All those who through fear of death, all through their lifetime, were subject to bondage. No, I won't be f- afraid of death. I won't be afraid of the judgment, for Christ has died in my place. And I know I will hear that voice. Come, thou blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He is become my salvation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father elected, chose a multitude before the foundation of the world from every tribe and tongue and kindred, electing love. The Son covenanted with the Father and the Holy Spirit to come, to become man, to take on him flesh so that he, God, could die that which God cannot do, die and shed blood. It says in, Ephes- in, in Acts chapter 20, that Paul to the elders of the, the Ephesian church on the beach at Miletus, he speaks of, uh, look after the church which God has redeemed with his own blood. God has redeemed the church with his, God's own blood, redeeming grace. How did he do it? In the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God our Saviour. God our Saviour. He is our God and Saviour. His irresistible calling and regeneration, the Holy Spirit. Who is it that does that in time? The Holy Spirit comes and you've been progressing along on your life with no thought whatsoever for the things of God, but at his time he comes and brings conviction and shows the truth and gives you faith and opens your eyes, takes the scales away so that you see and are made alive to the things of God. It's summarised in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Just turn there, 2 Timothy, you know it well. You might even not need to turn because you know it so well. But in verse 8, at the end of it, it it speaks of God, then verse 9, God who has saved us. He's us, the people that God has saved. God who has saved us. Us, the elect whom he chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. God who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, not because you did anything better than anybody else, not because you've got a better tradition, not because your family is cleverer or more righteous or richer or in any way different from anybody else. No, nothing whatsoever. Not according to our works, but according to what? His own purpose, his own will, his own intention to be gracious to whom he will be gracious to, to, according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus, when? Before time began, before the world began, before the beginning of time. So it's not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy, but is now made manifest, is now openly shown by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who has abolished death, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Do you see who is our saviour? Jesus Christ. Who did we read in, um, in, in Isaiah chapter um, 12 and verse 2? God is our saviour. Behold, God is my salvation. 
that for the Lord is my strength and he's become my salvation. Who is our saviour? The Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's him, our saviour Jesus Christ, who has abolished death by the salvation he's accomplished and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Sovereign election before time, covenant grace, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all working together in covenant grace, manifested now in Christ our Saviour, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. If God be for us, says Paul in Romans 8, who can be against us? So then finally, what is the effect on the sinner who is saved? Who is, what, what is the effect? The Holy Spirit brings conviction. We, re, we sometimes sing that hymn, a sinner is a sacred thing. The Holy Ghost has made him so. The Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin and gives thirst for God, as it says in Psalm 42, as the heart, the deer, panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul, longs, yearning after thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Blessed are they, says the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled, for God in Christ shall fill them. He shall satisfy that thirst. Come unto me and drink. Whosoever thirst, come to me and let him drink. In God's time, they're moulded, until they say, his people, they're taken from the, from the pit, from the horrible pit, and they're moulded by the Holy Spirit's work until they're able to say, as all God's people are able to say, Ephesians 5 verse 2, Christ also has loved me and has given himself for me, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. If God says to your soul, I am thy salvation, he convicts you of sin. He reveals the Saviour bearing and paying your sin debt. He brings you to newness of life. He regenerates you. And he teaches us. This is what Paul says to Titus 2 verse 12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, knowing the truth of God, and experiencing the salvation of God, we shouldn't then just live as we want because God has saved us from our sins. No, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. Not only does God impute, pay over to your account the righteousness of God to the sinner, he also imparts a righteous nature that strives all the time you're a believer in this flesh, that strives with the sinful flesh. The flesh and the spirit, they're in conflict. They're, they're in tension against one another until the saved sinner passes into the paradise of God. What keeps you from praying? There might be some listening and say, well, this is all sounding very good, but it's not for me. What keeps you from praying that the Lord will say to your soul, I am thy salvation. Lord, say unto my soul, I am that. What keeps you from praying that prayer of David? Does it seem like it's too lonely a path? You know, so much would have to change. I, I, I couldn't possibly do that. It's just, just too big a change for me. Well, indeed it is. It is a huge change. Uh, Jesus said again in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 verse 13. He said, Enter ye in at the straight gate. That means narrow gate. For wide is the gate, 
and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in there, at, oh, I just feel more comfortable going in with the crowd along the same wide and broad way. Oh, no, no, no. Straight is the gate. Not wide, it's the straight gate, the narrow gate. And narrow is the way which leads to life. There's not many on it. Few there be that find it. Yes, you're right. It can be a lonely path. There's just a handful of us here this morning, and I know there's, there's a few out there on the internet with us. Yeah, quite a few this morning, pretty good. And a lot more will listen to the sermon, but even so, compared with the populations around us who have no thought for these things, it's a narrow way. It's a straight way. It's a narrow way which leads to life, and few there be that find it. Yes, it is. But look at the end. Let me remind you of Revelation 7, verse 9, where John says this, After this I beheld, I looked, and lo, this is in heaven, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, the Lamb of God, clothed with white robes, saved from their sins, palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Amen.